you know what I'm saying. Mercy doesn't feel like it would, doesn't feel like it actually works in the real world. And so maybe I'm projecting, but when I picture this scene that we just read, where the liberator's on the side of the mountain and the people are gathering around him, my hunch is that after he spoke about justice and then he shifted gears and he went to mercy, my hunch is that all of the pews that were all full on the side of that mountain, they slowly started to empty. Because nobody has time for mercy in a merciless world. We don't have time for that. They especially didn't have time for that. Mercy was a sign of misery. In fact, one Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was for weakness. It was not for the winners. And these people were in desperate need of a win. And how winners came about at that time, in that society, in that age, is the exact same way that winners come about at this time, in our society, in this age, where might makes right. Violence, the merciless. You do what you got to do. It's a dog-eat-dog world, cutthroat society. These were violent people on the side of the hill. See, we forget that, right? Because when we picture these scenes, we try to recreate who is where and, you know, all these different things. We often say violence and we think about the Romans, and justifiably so. The Romans were the epitome of violence. They were in charge of all systems. But you have a people here who were starting to reproduce the pain that they had received. All over the land, they were popping up and doing different things. And so mercy would not be tolerated. If Jesus is trying to say, do not be violent, then that just does not work. And that's what I thought on Monday. But then this morning, well, at 3 in the morning, which is, well, it's for Yam House, it's a late night, right? You know what I'm saying? Because you're young and wild and cool. Must be nice. Okay. 3 in the morning, I'm reading this text, and I realize um, Jesus isn't advocating for nonviolence right here. He's not trying to temper their appetite for violence. If anything, I would say that Jesus is trying to make them more violent. And here's what I mean. Jesus looks at the crowd, and for the Romans who are there, they're sizing up peasants, and they're looking at these bodies and saying, which one might we put on a cross next? For the peasants in the crowd, they're sizing up the Roman soldiers, and they're thinking, which one might we ambush next? And Jesus says to both of them, if you're going to be violent, your violence is far too small. If you're going to be violent... Why be violent with flesh and blood and citizens and soldiers? Why be violent against other people that you deem to be violent when you could be violent against violence? You could take out that whole system. If you're going to be violent, let's really get violent. Let's be violent like Mother Teresa was violent against the caste system. Let's be violent like King was violent against racial apathy. Let's be violent, but let's shoot big if we're going to be violent. That's a word that maybe they could have responded to. Mercy might have a way of making its way in there. Because Jesus says if you want to actually inflict some real sizable damage, if you want to really be violent to where the violence actually lies, well, then you're going to have to walk the road of mercy. I was was in a CVS parking lot on Friday afternoon, and I was watching traffic. That is the worst way to start a story I've ever thought of. Um, You know, as you do. And... um, I was, in the, I was there, I was waiting for a prescription to get filled. There we go, now it's normal. I was watching traffic, and as I was watching, I noticed that there was this lady coming down Penn Avenue, Penn and 66, if you're familiar with. Penn, she's coming down the avenue, and she's going pretty fast. And I only noticed it because there was a red light in front of her suggesting that she should slow down. She does not do it. She is a very old lady. I mean, she is like hunching over the wheels. I'm talking like maybe 50 or something like that. I'm kidding. Don't, don't give me that look. I'm kidding. 
she was at least 60. But um, <laughs> so this lady, though, is coming down, and I'm watching this, and it's kind of like it's just what's going to happen next. And she's, getting, she's going pretty fast. Before, not like I could do anything, but before I could do anything, she enters into the intersection going this way on Penn and 66, while an SUV is coming this way. Both are going full speed. He hits the front of her car. She spins to the side. He sputters over, and he pulls to the side of the road. I don't, I've never seen a car crash like, like that before. And so I didn't really know how to, re- I, I, I jumped the fence, I walked over, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just kind of stood there. And the guy in the SUV, he kind of stumbled out and he's kind of like stretching his, his neck and his arms and uh, just trying to get his bearings. And he lifted up his face and he just had like this squinty eyes, uh, you know, dazed and confused nature to his, his face. And I thought, I've seen that face before. In fact, I feel like I've seen that face a lot this past year. I've seen a lot of your faces look like that after some of the things that you faced. A lot of you in this room, I've seen you be going about your business, trying to get to where you need to go, staying in your lane, not doing anything too crazy, when all of a sudden you got smacked out of nowhere. You got blindsided. Somebody came and hijacked where you were trying to go, and next thing you know, you sputtered to the side of the road, and you walked out going, what is going on? For some of this room, it was that Monday afternoon where you read the text that your husband sent to your best friend. For others, it was making dinner after the table service for your back home, and you got that phone call filled with all those false accusations. I know some stories in this room of people who have come out with truth to their family, and their family sold them away. Said, we will speak of this no more. Haven't spoken since. There's a lot of wounds in this room. We walk as a bruised and bleeding people. We've been pushed around. We've been hurt. And oftentimes when we get in this dazed and confused place where we step out of those crashes, we're trying to find our feet, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. We don't know what the next right move is. It's let me just tell you what this guy did on Friday. He gets out of his SUV, and he finds his feet. He takes a deep inhale. He stretches, moves his neck. And then he turns his head, and he notices that the lady that hit him, or he hit her, whoever, however that word, uh, she hasn't gotten out of her car yet. She's still sitting in the intersection. And then he looks over, and he sees that her hands are still on the steering wheel, fixed. And then he looks closer and he realizes she has no intentions of getting out of the car right now. And so this guy who was going about his own business, this guy who was doing nothing wrong, who just got hit, he turns and he sees this old lady in his car and he starts walking over the glass, around the debris, and he goes all the way up to her window where he doesn't yell at her, how could you do this? He says, how are you doing? Are you okay? Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. And I think it looks something like that. Blessed are those who get hit and do not hit back. Blessed are those who refuse to return, uh, who refuse to, in their pain, return the pain to the person who put it on them. Blessed are those who show grace. Blessed are those who do not punish, who do not double down where the hurt already lies. 
that, that puts a hole in violence. In the I'm going to get even, I'm going to show you mentality. And when we don't go that road, the world gets ugly quick. I want to show you an image of what that world turns into. And it's an image from Judges 15. It's a story of Samson. Uh, as is true with all of Samson's stories, Samson is uh, he's just one big fat adventure in testosterone, if you've read the scripture at all. And so I think of Fabio every time. Do we have that picture of Fabio? Has anybody checked in on Fabio as of late? Is he okay? I have not heard from that man in quite some time. Judges 15 is where we're going to be going tonight. And this tale right here that we're about to read, is, it's, it's ancient. It's barbaric. It's primitive. And for that reason, I think it will speak really loudly into our lives. I think we'll be able to see the connection. Sometimes when you see things in more of their cartoonish level, you go, oh, okay, that's what's happening here. So Judges 15 says this. I got to find it. Is it on the screen? Okay, it's up there. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but a father would not let him go in. Don't you just wish you had that Samson kind of swagger where you could walk up to the father and say, I'm going to my wife's room and I got to go. Real charmer. Going to my wife's room, but my father would not let him go in. I was so sure that you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion, your friend, your best friend. Besides, isn't her younger sister more attractive anyways? Take her instead. Pause real quick. So again, um, when you read stories like this, you have to, we have to suspend our notions of what we would call now human rights, women's rights. This is primitive, barbaric. This is ancient. This isn't good. This is their reality, though. That's, the Bible is honest in that way. You're getting a glimpse into what was, not necessarily what is, or heaven forbid, what should be. But you're getting this image here, and if you can suspend those notions, those hesitations to want to gravitate into a text like this, you can kind of notice some familiarity inside of it. You can notice Samson right there. He just got hijacked. He just got smacked on the corner of 66th and Penn. He just got hit by a bruise that he did not expect. He came to see about a girl. He even brought a goat with him, and he finds out the girl that he was going to marry is no longer the one he's going to marry. And so he gets angry. And the question that a text like this and a story like this poses to a people like us is the same questions that our story asks us. When you run into pain, when you get hijacked, when hurt comes your way, what is that pain going to produce? In light of all that you have lost, in light of all that's been done to you, in light of all the wounds that you picked up along the way, what's your next move? How is that going to speak into what's next for you? Because if you don't decide that prior to actually getting hijacked on the road, smacked around, getting hurt, well, then anger has a loudest voice in the conversation. And it does right here for Samson. Samson, in pain, in anger, he says this to them. This time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. This time, I'm really going to harm them. Samson says, this time I have a right, which by implication means that there was another time where he recognized that he did not have this right. I mean, if we look at that, then that means that his convictions, his moral code, his, his moral compass, it's more flexible than firm. Because the moment something happens to him, all of his convictions go out the window because they're no longer so convenient. 
It's amazing, isn't it? When you are wrongly wounded, how easy it is to feel like you are in the right to wrongly wound. How quick your pain gives you permission to be painful. Um, I will tell you this story uh, with, yeah, I don't feel great about it. I was in a car, 2012, never forget the look that my wife gave me. 2012, um, it's in a real dark place at that time, immature. Had a lot to learn, you know. You know what I'm saying? And I um, was driving down the highway, and some girl cut me off out of nowhere. And I was driving with one hand on the steering wheel, which means I had another hand that was free. And I started with just a fist. My intentions were pure. But then out of nowhere, like it was an out-of-body experience, my finger just kept going up. And then some things came out of me, and Lauren turned to me when she realized that I was flicking off a 16-year-old girl. She said, what have you become? You remember that? How dark? That was a dark night right there. My point being is that there are things that you say that you will never do. There are things that you swear you're above and you're beyond. You don't do those kinds of things. But the moment that you get angry, the moment that you get mad, how quick our default wiring is to get even. How quick is it when we feel pain to pass that pain back, to make somebody who hurt us make them hurt even more? Return the favor but double time. And the reason why it's so easy is because the wound comes with justification. You actually feel like it's the right thing to do. It's so easy to convince yourself. You say things like, uh, I mean, I could be passive about this. I could just, you know, pocket this one and not return any kind of pain. But they need to learn a lesson. Which, by the way, let me ask you this. When you've been the wounder, when you've been in the wrong, and somebody was going to return the favor because you needed to learn a lesson, how did that lesson really fall on your ears? When you had somebody smash your cars or trash your name, did you walk away going like, man, that was just, that was an expansive experience. I'm so glad that that, I'm so, what a thoughtful thing to do. No, of course not. Why do we do that? Because we want some kind of excuse to justify the hurt that we're trying to put back on people. It's the violence. It's the myth of redemptive violence. The myth that retribution is the same thing as resolution. The myth that might makes right. The myth that says that as long as you get even, you're going to get better. And so we get past this hurt. We play with it like hot potato. Instead of throwing it away, we pass it back on the person because we say, they need to be hurting just like we are hurting. Which, newsflash, they already are. Like, like people who hurt other people, who wound other people, they don't do so from this place of wholeness and health and love and stability. They're doing it from a place of woundedness, a place of fear, a place of anxiety, a place of angst. There's something there. This is why I loved what Dr. King talked about when he would talk about, and he would lose a lot of people in doing so, but he would pursue racial reparations and reconciliation. He would pursue a collective us and moving us into a better place. And when people ask, well, what about the KKK? What about those white people who are standing in your way? He would always refer to them as his sick white brothers and sisters. And he actually believed we were sick. He saw past the badness and said, there's something better about you than is apparent right now, and I'm going to speak to that as opposed to punish this. Samson responds, he says, this time uh, I have a right, and I'm really going to hurt them, and then he does. It's what he does is he went out and he caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torch, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves like you do. Samson believed he is uh, wrong. 
And so he goes out, apparently, and he rounds up 300 foxes. He ties them butt to butt, and he puts a torch in between. And I'm not a big nature guy, but I'm led to believe the foxes aren't crazy about this arrangement. And so they start dispersing, and they go out into the fields, out into the villages, where these fields are all burned up. And how did this start? Why is he doing this? Because he went to go see about a girl, and it did not work out. Is this a sound and reasonable, rational response to a pain like that? His girl went to his friend, and immediately he is burning up an entire village's food supply. Is it safe to say that when you commit to your ways of vengeance, when you buy into the myth of redemptive violence, that that thing is always going to escalate? In that passing, receiving of hurt and passing it back, what we do not realize is that it is a snowball, and it is getting bigger and bigger with each exchange. And we want to do that because we want to win, Right? You said something about me, well, I'm going to say something back, but it's going to be a little bit more humiliating. It's going to be a little bit more cutting. It's going to leave a little bit deeper and darker of a mark, and it just goes back and back and back and back, and that's what happens in this entire story. I'll skip the next parts right here, but what Samson happens is he burns this field, the Philistines in response. They go and they kill the girl, that Samson was going to see about, and they kill her dad too. Samson, in response, he kills some more people. They kill some more people. Eventually, the Philistines take a whole army to go and look for Samson. When Samson's people see this army coming and they say, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? They say to him, Patty, can you put up that slide? We've come to take Samson's, Samson prisoner, to do to him as he did to us. To do to him as he did to us. He didn't do this, but okay. So do to him as he did to us. Uh, people of Judah, they find this to be a satisfactory answer. And so they send 3,000 people to go and look for Samson. They corner him in a cave and they ask him, like, what were you doing, man? You know that these guys run the show. Why are you trying to fire them up? You do not wake this sleeping giant. And Samson, in response, he says to them, I merely did to them what they did to me. And all of a sudden, this ancient, primitive, barbaric text, it feels kind of familiar. What a world looks like that is absent of mercy. I merely did to them what they did to me. They are so far deep in this cycle of violence, in this cycle of getting even, in this cycle of inflicting pain, that they can't even remember what they were fighting about in the first place. Is this not the exact same story as Shakespeare? There was a word spoken generations ago, a long time ago. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it wasn't good. And so we've been fighting back and forth, back and forth. This is the equivalent of Pong right here. Do you have that Pong? You guys remember this? It doesn't work. Okay, do you remember Pong? Is it working? Nobody remembers Pong. Cutting edge graphics, 1972. Yeah, you guys do, okay. But this is essentially what is happening right here. It is this nonstop back and forth, I hurt you, you hurt me, you steal from me, I steal from you, you bomb me, I bomb you, you take my parking spot, I spit in your coffee. It goes back and forth again and again. I don't know the corporate world. I actually don't know if people spit in people's coffee or not, but you understand what I'm saying. It is this cyclical nature to violence, this myth that like eventually, if I hurt them enough, I will get my revenge. And nobody ever asks, like stops and asks, how would you know if you have your revenge? 
Like, when will you know if you actually have enough of the pain that's been inflicted? When will you actually be satisfied with the suffering at hand? You can't know. And so it's only bound to escalate. It's only bound to be cyclical. It's only bound to repeat itself over and over again, and nobody wins. And the ultimate problem, the biggest problem of it all, is that it is one violent action inflicted upon who they deem to be a violent person. And everybody's going after all the violent people, but nobody's going after violence. And so violence stays in the story. Violence stays in the system. Nobody dares to dream about what victory might look like outside of defeating another person. Nobody dares to dream about what a healthy way of going about the world might look like outside of decimating somebody else. And this is the beauty of Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. Because the cross is the ultimate end of violence. You see, when we think about this myth of redemptive violence and how it seeps into every sector, both our personal lives, our work lives, our church lives, it also seeps into our religion because it's missed, messed up how we even see the cross. Have you noticed that? What is the story we often tell of the cross? God was angry. He's upset about human sin. He's upset about what you did, the website you go to, the way you talk to that person. He's not happy about it. And so through violence, he had to kill somebody in order to create peace that worked. That is the story that tends to circulate. You look at the scripture, that's not the story it says. The story of the scripture says that eventually Jesus recognized that the only way we can break this spell of redemptive violence and expose it for what it is, is if I absorb the pain and take it on myself. If I go to the cross and bear it all without striking back. If I get cursed out without cursing back. If I get stepped on without stepping back. If I go to the cross, and even in the most of the ugliest, worst humanity has ever seen, I can still speak to God and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's exposing the myth of violence by saying it stops here. Here's where I'm putting the pong paddle down. Here's where I'm pushing the keyboard away. Here's where I'm stopping. It ends. When Jesus says it is finished. It is finished. So when we think about mercy, I want you to think about the cross. Because the cross is an icon. It is an instrument. But it's also this profound question that asks, could you live your life in a different way that gives birth to something beautiful in the world? And just like the cross, it will be a painful experience that will look like you lose. When somebody talks noise about you on Facebook and you recognize that you're not going to play that game anymore and you pull back, it's going to look like you lose. When somebody swings at you, spreads rumors about you, and you don't double down and say, well, they said this, then I'm going to say this because this time I have the right, it's going to look like you lose. And it's going to be painful. But it's the kind of pain that is childbirth. One of the beautiful things about this word for mercy in the Hebrew language is the same word that we have for mercy is the same word we have for womb. You absorb this pain. The wounds that you've been given, you, that does not give you permission to wound people back. And just to be clear, um, I think part of the reason why I got up at 3 in the morning thinking about this is because of all of the complexities and nuances around it. When we talk about how the end of violence and ending this cyclical nature of getting lost in this uh, myth of redemptive violence, just to be clear, when I'm talking about absorbing pain, I am not talking about you staying in the house with an abusive person. 
I'm not talking about you allowing people to do uh, disgusting things to you. I'm talking about a healthy place with boundaries involved that seeks the edification of others and recognizes that I am not going to get better the moment I try to get back at somebody. And so I'm going to take this pain and I'm going to absorb it. Because if I keep passing it back and forth, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and there's going to be more casualties. What started, which is the guy, a goat, and a girl, ended up with 3,000 soldiers, thousands of people's dead. And it doesn't have to be that way. Let me close with this story. Um, I have somebody in my life who, uh, she grew up in a horrible home. She grew up with an abusive father who was... Uh, habitually unhealthy, treated her um, terribly. And I want her to share with you just what it was like uh, when that same father, after years of not speaking to him, said, I have cancer. Mom, can you come up and share that story a little bit? Do we have a handheld? I can, you know, we can I want you to talk about how, what we talked about, the idea of, okay. you know what I'm saying. I can tell you a story if you want to. You want to just, like, stay up here and I can use you as a prop of sorts?
So let me close with this. I, I wanted her to share that though, and I asked her to do it at 3.35 today, is because, um, because it's 4 o'clock. <laughs> the reason why though is because there are these cycles of violence that could go on and on, and yet my mom, she gave us this image of somebody, which, and I realized putting you on the spot to do that, to talk about the fact that what she did was that she went up to Wisconsin, four-hour drives, regularly, routinely, and she would wash and bathe this man who beat her. It is ugly, hard work to get out of your car and walk across the glass and absorb the pain to make sure that somebody else is okay. But in doing so, she gave forth a beautiful birth to our family, one where there is no violence, one where there is trust. There are no locked doors. There are different ways that we can live this world. There is the way of vengeance and there is the way of the cross. May we be a people who go the latter way. Amen? Amen. Thanks for sharing that, Shannon. I don't know that. I've heard a monkey story. Mercy is what it makes me think of is that um, somehow involved in mercy is with the help of the Holy Spirit being able to set self aside and let God work through you and somehow having the ability to see the image of God in your father. And that has to have something to do with mercy and breaking the cycle of violence. It is the cross. And when we gather together on Sunday nights and we break bread together, where we invite everybody to the table, we remember a God who was merciful, a God in the person of Jesus that showed us mercy. And so when we come forward and we dip that bread into the cup, we remember the love of a God who loves us like that, who can help us set aside pain and woundedness and love. What could be greater than that? So during the music, we invite you to come forward, and there'll be gluten-free elements here, and there'll be people over here, and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. And on the night before Jesus died on that cross, that merciful act. He sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take that and eat that. And remember me. And likewise, he took the wine and he poured it into a cup and he said, this is my blood, the new covenant for you. And when you drink from this cup, Remember me. Remember me and my love and my mercy and the way that I call you all to live as well. And so that's what we do. We humbly approach the cross. We humbly take the bread and dip it into the wine. And we give thanks for mercy. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 